All this expert needs is a skilled hand and a girl with guts. This is a guy that throws real knives, machetes, uh, axes at a beautifully, scantily clad woman on stage. What could be better than that? What could be better than that? Well, how about throwing knives around two girls on stage, spinning on a wheel, hidden behind the veil? I'm Mark Hartzman, and in this episode of Weird Historian, you'll meet the Reverend Dr. David Adamovich, aka the Great Throdini, the world's fastest and most accurate knife thrower. He holds multiple world records and does things with knives no other performer has ever done. He also happens to be the curator of a recently unearthed massive collection of serial killer murderabilia. But don't worry, the knife thrower's blades are not becoming part of the collection. Hi, Throdini. Welcome to Weird Historian. Hi there, Mark. Uh, my friends call me Throw, so you can stick with that. I thought we should start with a little background about you. There's so much to talk about. I first had the pleasure of writing about you in my book, American Sideshow. But for those not familiar, I think it's important to note that you were not always a knife thrower. You spent nearly two decades working as a professor. You wrote a textbook on electrocardiography. You're a reverend. You've owned the pool hall. And you're a trained chef. So how did you add world's fastest and most accurate knife thrower to that list? Well, when I started in knife throwing, which was at the age of 50, after I left academia, I went into emergency medicine management for about five years, and then opened a pool hall. And that became my full-time job. As soon as I opened the pool hall, one of my customers came in with a throwing knife that his son-in-law had given him, showed me the knife. We Neither one of us knew what to do with it. I went out and threw it up against the tree outside the pool hall, and it stuck perfectly. And I said, hey, Joe, I can do that. And that became my obsession. That's all I wanted to do was throw knives at that point. So that quickly led to being a world champion within nine months of the first time I threw a knife. And then five years in competition, I met Chris McDaniel. Chris McDaniel introduced me to show business. He's a trick roper and Wild West artist. And we needed kind of a stage name, et cetera. And he said to me, you know, we discussed the whole thing. And my wife at the time came up with the great Throdini. And that just simply wasn't enough. We needed something more to explain who the great Throdini was. So it became the world's fastest and most accurate knife thrower. So that's how it all came together. And you're not just saying that. You have the world records to prove it. Uh, I've set up broken 44 world records to date, and it's the speed, distance, and accuracy of my throwing. I've been clocked, you know, on, on a videotape of doing three knives within one second. I have thrown 144 around my assistant in one minute. And for distance, I threw a 14-inch knife into a 12-inch round from 101 feet. So that would be considered like, for argument's sake, just think of a ball the size of your head. And I hit that from 101 feet away. Wow. 
And of course, I always say on stage, that's where the expression comes from. You don't mess with the knife thrower in the circus. <laughs> and they get the point. That's good advice. Which of those records was the most difficult to achieve? I think the 144 in one minute, because it was throwing three knives at a time. Wow. So uh, that's really difficult to throw three knives, have all three of them stick, and can successfully stick all 144 without dropping one knife within the minute. So you're grabbing three knives in one hand, tossing them all. That just sounds especially difficult to make sure that all three knives are going where you want them to go, which is around the girl. Yes. <laughs> and of course, that let's get that straight, too. When people say to me, how long have you been throwing knives at girls? I say, I never throw at, I throw around. They last a lot longer that way. Yeah, that is a key part of your, <laughs> of your job. <laughs> yes. For accuracy, I've also knocked the ashes off the end of a lit cigarette in someone's mouth without moving the cigarette. I just managed to, the, the knife went through the lit ash, flicked it off, put the cigarette out, and the cigarette itself never moved while in the person's lips. Think about that one. Because <laughs> that's like two inches, maybe less than three inches from our nose when that knife came by. Have you ever had trouble finding a target girl? Actually, no. Uh, target girls, for the most part, come to me. I, I'm often approached by people that want to be my assistant. I very rarely had to ask someone to be my assistant. And I think the ones that have been the best, absolute best on stage with me are the girls that have a previous or current running act themselves in sideshow or one thing or another. And they're, uh, they're quite comfortable on stage. They know how to ham it up. They, they know how to, at the right time, how to upstage me so that it's funny. I'll give you a perfect example. Chrissy Cocktail from Coney Island was absolutely one of the best I've ever worked with. And that's not to say anything less about any other girl, but in terms of someone who can carry the audience entirely on her own, independent of my knife throwing, which augments my knife throwing, would be someone like that, like Chrissy Cocktail, who would be doing literally practical jokes on me on stage and would be catching me off guard. And the audience would actually see and understand that she just pulled one on me on stage. And I was as surprised as they were. It goes perfectly in line of the name of the act being Maximum Risk, the Impalement Arts with a Touch of Magic and Comedy. So that's to answer your question about the girls. And I guess the other key thing for them, aside from performance experience and being able to be spontaneous on stage, would be trust. And clearly they trust you. Yes, they do. All of them have always said that. Sometimes I hear a comment like, what would you let, you know, just anybody throw knives around you? And they say, absolutely not. That's, you know, Throdini. I trust him explicitly. He's one of the best, if not the greatest knife thrower in the world. And, you know, they, they actually and honestly feel that. And I appreciate that. And I respect that. You know, my, my entire job up there on stage is their safety first. And so what I'm doing has safety mechanisms built into it. And, you know, where I'm throwing, what I'm throwing and how I'm throwing it. And they understand that. Yes, I've had some close calls. I've actually slid the knife off their body at times, but never impaled one. So there's been little incidents, as I like to call them, 
but never had to pull a knife out of anyone. That's definitely good news. I'm sure they're pleased about that as well. Um, and when, when it did have a little slip, they were okay? There was no, no shock, no gore? Yep, yep. Yeah, they just go with the flow. Yeah. True professionals. Oh, that's great. You mentioned the world records, and you talked about a few of the statistics of those records, which are incredible. But beyond that, I think it's also really interesting to note that you've taken the impalement arts to really a whole new level. You're the first one to throw knives around two girls on a wheel, a spinning wheel, covered by a veil. So when you did that, what made you decide, okay, this is something I got to do. I need to push it to this level. And how did you then train for that? Wow. Great question. Okay. Let me back it up by saying uh, in 1938, Joe Gibson, a German knife thrower, came to the United States to perform with Ringling Brothers Barn Bailey Circus. And he did a veiled wheel with one girl. It was the first time it was ever done in the United States. And then two people did it after him. And between 1970 and about 2010, Nobody did a veiled wheel. And I like researched every possible way to figure out how it was done. There were several theories floating out there about how we could possibly throw through the paper with this, the wheel literally spinning at one second per revolution and know where to throw. And it, it took me a while. I put a lot of thought into it. I finally figured out how to do this. And after some like 30 something years that it wasn't done, I became the fourth person to do it. I believe one more person has done it since that time. So there's five altogether. But I was the fourth who brought it back to the modern time. And then I did a show called Bored to Death on HBO. And uh, Schwarzman, season three, episode one, opens the show by... This is Jason Schwarzman? Yes, yes. And he's on the wheel spinning, and they had to mount... They wanted to mount a TV camera to the wheel, so you would see his face, like, from inches away as he was spinning around, which you couldn't simulate that unless you actually had the camera on the wheel. So I brought my wheel, but it wasn't strong enough to hold the camera. So when the show was done... They rebuilt their own wheel exactly to look like mine. But whereas my frame was one inch angle iron, which is quite capable of holding one girl, they built a frame with three inch angle iron. And this thing weighed a ton. And it was quite easy to hold Schwarzman and the camera mounted to the wheel. When the show was over, they called me like, you know, a couple of weeks later and they said, by the way, we, you know, we rebuilt the wheel. We had to do that one scene over. Would you like the wheel? I thought about it for a moment. I said, ah, why not? What the heck? I, you know, I'd love to have another wheel as a backup. I drive to the studio in Brooklyn. I pull up with my avalanche truck and three guys come out to help load this thing onto my car. And literally the back end was down to the ground and the nose was up a bit. Realize, I realized then just what three inch angle iron weighs. And got this thing home, put it together, and looked at it and said, holy smoke, that can hold two girls. It's the same six-foot six diameter as my wheel, except the entire thing is so much stronger. And that was after I had been doing the veiled wheel with one girl. And I figured, well, what the heck? If I could put two girls on there, why would I just throw to the wheel 
let's up the ante and do something no one else has ever done and do it with a veil. And let me back that up. I had only seen one act ever in my entire career, one short video clip of an act of two male throwers, two female assistants. They had the two girls on the wheel, head up, head down next to each other. One guy was throwing and the other one was spinning the wheel. So in the back of my mind, I knew this had been done, but it was just a matter of raising the stakes and doing it veiled. And then after I did it, Ripley's, believe it or not, picked it up and featured me in the uh, centennial edition of their book for, for the Veil Double Wheel. Veil, yeah, that's right, the Veil Double Wheel of Death. There you go. That's the story. And so how did that work when you approached your target girl you were working with at the moment? Did you say, okay, how do you feel about adding another girl to this wheel? Was she open to it and then finding that second girl? Same question. Was she excited about it or were there any nerves? Well, they were because they knew that this had never been done before and that in essence they will carry with them the uh, the badge of honor of being the first one in history to do it and to say up to this point no one else has ever done it i don't know that anyone ever will but then again once you know it can be done it's a lot easier to do than trying to figure it out yourself for the first time but both girls were very excited about it and uh, i know they're very proud to have been part of it it's an amazing stunt just incredible Thank you. How many knives are you throwing at it when you're doing that? I'm throwing two per revolution and a total of 10 knives. Okay. Uh, when I do the, the, the veil double wheel, it's somewhere between, it's not one second per rev, it's not 1.1 second, it's about 1.05 seconds per revolution. Just about in that range, maybe as at slowest to maybe 1.1. But the significance of that is that I am throwing two knives per revolution. So each knife is just a fraction slower than a half second per throw. And I'm throwing on both sides. So the wheel is spinning, I'm throwing in the same location, but first there's a, it's on the left side of the wheel, then it's, what would it be, the right side that came up on the left side. I'm sorry, it sounds confusing, but I am throwing two knives per revolution, and the revolution is uh, just about one point zero five seconds per turn now you perform in new york and you mentioned ripley's you mentioned this hbo show bored to death uh, you were on america's got talent season two but you've performed all over the world talk about a few of the shows you've been on and the places you've traveled well to date it's been 13 countries and i think about 21 or 22 international trips uh like in indonesia i went back about five times total mexico was a couple times was it germany a couple times but I think the most exciting one, I think Indonesia and Cuba. Uh, in Indonesia, I did a, a very big magic show with their top magician mentalist, Dedi Kobuzia, and the show was called Maha Korea Magician. And that was a big deal. Uh, it was a live magic show featuring Dedi and several other uh, performers. And then I got to do the Cuban National Circus with uh, my partner, Lynn. We were the first knife-throwing act there, and I would say the only that I'm aware of, in over 55 years. Once uh, Castro took over, he did not allow knife-throwing or any kind of weapons there. So we were invited to perform at their uh, festival, the Cuban National Circus Festival, and we were there for whatever the time was, a week or so. And that was just like a highlight of my life, I guess. I... I thoroughly enjoy circus more than 
anything else because there's there's just absolutely nothing like running into a ring with a handful of knives and an assistant on your arm and uh, turning around and starting to throw. It's just, it's a wonderful feeling. Yeah, what an experience. Yeah. You mentioned weapons with Castro. And it makes me wonder, you know, when you travel, what is it like going through airport security with a ton of knives? How does that work for a knife thrower? It's a complete nightmare. It's a nightmare leaving the States, within the States, flying anywhere, and then landing and getting through on the other end. Because when they x-ray it, there's this huge mass of something that doesn't x-ray very well. <laughs> so they open it, they look at it. And then, of course, I always find the TSA slip in my luggage saying that your, your luggage has been inspected. <laughs> and then I get to the other side. And once they threw a tracker in it, and I didn't know about it, and I got to Hong Kong, and I started to walk through the luggage area, and alarms went off. They grabbed me. They opened up the luggage because it was something in the luggage tripped off an alarm. And they wanted an explanation as to why there was uh, quite a few throwing knives in there. Because of the language difference, it was a a problem. And I just happened to have some of my posters from the off-Broadway show that we did that shows me in my tuxedo holding a knife with my assistant next to me and Chris McDaniel on the other side then they were able to put two and two together and realize that I was a circus performer going there to perform. Right. It's like your official document is your poster. (laughs) Yes. And I used the word I shouldn't have. You used it as well. But we both referred to the knives as weapons. And that was my mistake. I never do that. I I always refer to the knives as my performance tool. It's it's a uh, prop that I'm using on stage to entertain with. I never call it a weapon. When I was in Cuba, Castro was very sick. He was probably near dying, which he was. And someone had said that he was coming to the closing show of the festival. And I said to the uh, director of the circus, wow, that would be so cool. I think, you know, I'd like to go over and present him with one of my knives. And the guy looked at me and he said, you so much as look in his direction with a knife in your hand and you'll be shot dead before you knew what happened to you. (laughs) <laughs> so he said, okay, okay, no presents for Castro if he shows up. So there's my uh, my Cuba story, and it's true. That's crazy. Are you working on anything new now? Any stunts to top what you've already done? Or any new records you're working on? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Things have been dead since uh, the onset of COVID. I remember it was back in February or March a year ago when things hit. And they suddenly shut down theaters and, you know, the whole madness that went on. And I was scheduled that week for a performance at Monday Night Magic at the Players Theater in New York City. And that was the first show that was canceled. And I was alleged to be in that show. And then sometime in May of that year, we had four shows for a Roaring Twenties kind of party thing up in Canada, plus a couple over on the West Coast. All of those got canceled. And only recently, I was contacted by that group. It was a European group that put those parties together. And they said, okay, are you available in May? And I thought it was May 2021. I said, of course I'm available. I'd love to do this again. What's the calendar? They sent me the calendar. And I said, that's strange. These dates are showing up in the middle of a week. Called them back. And they said, no, didn't you look at the year? We're talking about May 2022. Oh, wow. And over the last... uh, 12, 13, 14 months, the only thing I did was to tape a TV show uh, called Game of Talents. 
And that was shot six months ago. So that's how exciting my life has been with one TV show in L.A. waiting for it to air six months later. Well, hopefully things change soon. You can get back to performing on a more regular basis. I know people would love to see you. I'd love to, Mark. I really, you know, I'm se- I'll am be 75 in December. I'm the oldest uh, performing impalement artist out there in the business. And I still feel like I'm 30 or 40 years old. So I have no intention or desire whatsoever to give up. My skill level is still what it was when I started. And um, I don't see any slowing down. I just need bookings to keep me alive. Yeah. Like you said, you haven't lost a beat at all. And you're clearly the best at what you do. You know, not only are you a, a knife thrower of historic significance for the things that you've done, you know, the records you mentioned, the stunts you've been able to achieve, but you've also collected a bit of knife throwing history. Uh, you want to tell us about the Houdini knife collection and how you acquired that? Some years ago, I think it was 2004, I acquired four throwing knives that were alleged to be Harry Houdini's. The only provenance that came with them was the bill of sale from the auction where they were originally bought. Over the years, there's always been this attempt to try and prove what, uh, you know, the provenance on these knives. And I have been unable to do that. There were little bits and clues here and there that linked Houdini to the throwing knives. And just a few months ago, somehow it came to my attention that two more of them existed, a total of six. I had four, and there were two more out there. And I actively pursued them and bought them. So now I am the proud owner of the only six throwing knives known to exist that were owned by Harry Houdini. And as a result of having them and trying to document the provenance, my colleague and friend, Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick, who's a forensic genealogist who does DNA analysis linking family ties to either an alleged criminal or an unknown victim, and who's quite accomplished in researching the, the most obscure thing from the internet. Uh, we got together, and she and I would spend weeks digging into everything we could about the provenance of those knives. We feel very confident that we've nailed down every single loose end about the history of those knives from, uh, you know, in the early 1900s when Houdini would have had them to me owning all six now. And we wrote an article about it called Houdini's Throwing Knives, The Search for Provenance. And it's scheduled to appear in the July edition of MUM, which is Magic Unity Might, the official publication of the Society of American Magicians. What an incredible thing to own. That's amazing, Houdiniana, to have in your collection. Yes, and I keep one with me on stage whenever I perform. And I give a little, before I do my final stunt in the act, which is to stab a card that was signed by a volunteer earlier in the show. And then my my assistant springs the cards in front of the board. I throw the knife, and lo and behold, I stab the signed card. So going into that, I tell the audience about this very special knife I have with me, and it belonged to Harry Houdini. And of course, I say, "Are there any magicians out there in the audience?" And they, you know, oh, the hands go up, and they all, like you know, are salivating to come up and see it and touch it after the show. And I go, but. I don't let anybody touch it. And then I put it back down on the table and I, you know, I can hear them all like, oh, he told us all about the knife, but he's not going to let us see it. (laughs) I let them see the knife after the show if they want to see it. 
That's great. I'm sure it's a thrill for many people. Uh, you mentioned you know people coming up from the audience. You've thrown knives around some very famous people, though, correct? Can you tell us about a few of those experiences? Ah, well, let's say the one that goes to the top of the pile is Elon Musk. I was hired to do a birthday party up near the Tappan Zee Bridge in New York at some castle on the water, and they wouldn't tell me who the party was for. And I didn't find out until I got there that it was a three-day party for uh, Elon Musk's 40th birthday. Lynn had grabbed him, slapped him up against the board, and I threw some knives around him. And it wound up in his biography where he spoke about the time at his party where some knife thrower was throwing knives around him. So <laughs> That's awesome. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about another new venture in a different kind of collection. We'll be right back. This is a story about a model boy scout. He won all the medals. And a cool scout master. Being cool is code for getting high. And then there was a gunshot. And everything changed. A solid friendship. They were pals. Chuck said numerous times that Richie was like a son to him. Until betrayal led to violence. I pray to God that that's not Richie. A bizarre mechanism causes a tragic death. So this was a booby trap and it was lethal. Please join us for season one of the Miami Chronicles Booby Trap. Subscribe now, wherever you get your podcasts. Want to see ghosts in your own home, learn how to speak to the dead, or go on a sightseeing tour of hell? At Curious Publications, we take wonderfully odd public domain books lost to obscurity and give them new life. Shop CuriousPublications.com. We've all heard about little green men on Mars and the evil creatures in War of the Worlds. But what about the Martians who aren't little, green, or evil at all? According to many 20th century scientists, our interplanetary neighbors were quite tall, up to 10 feet in height, with skinny legs, large feet, big chests, and superior intelligence. And they were desperately trying to contact us. Find out about these early Martians and much more in The Big Book of Mars by Mark Hartzman. Filled with entertaining history, pop culture ephemera, and interviews with NASA scientists, it's the most comprehensive look at our relationship with Mars. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The Big Book of Mars is available from Quirk Books at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop.org, and wherever else you buy books. So we're back with the great Throdini. Throw, as we mentioned at the beginning, you're a man of many interests, uh, many different chapters in your life. Still doing the knife throwing, of course, as we said, but you've recently begun a very different kind of new venture, I guess we could say. Tell us about your new collection. Okay. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Richie Denton, had collected serial killer murderabilia over a 20-year point in his life. He died a few years ago, and Lynn and I purchased the entire collection, which we dubbed the Rosetta Collection of Serial Killer Murderabilia, as in like the Rosetta Stone, because for the years that he collected it, no one knew about it. It was just amassed and put in storage. And when I say the world's largest collection of its type, because there are over 9,000 letters well over 100 pieces of serial killer art, audio tapes, artifacts such as hair from 
Bundy, Manson, uh, Gacy, uh, clothing from Susan, Susan Smith, Christopher Scarver, who is the one that clobbered Jeffrey Dahmer to death in prison. And it goes on and on and on. We have recently teamed with a group called Killer Bunny, who are creating a podcast called Killer's Vault. And as we are speaking now, those episodes are being recorded by Liz Rom from Law and Order and Eric Roberts, who's Julia Roberts' older brother. She's the host and he's the narrator. And it's a very unique podcast. We are hoping it will be the absolute number one true crime podcast ever. And the first season is six episodes with uh, Gacy and Arthur Shawcross. It's now being advertised on Apple and Spotify under the name Killer's Vault. If anybody wants to go there, subscribe to it, and then they'll get a notice when the first episode airs. But the episodes have audio clips of phone conversations between Richie Denton and these serial killers that used to call him from prison. And uh, Eric will read the letters, excerpts from the letters that were written to Richie from prison. It really is a, a an extraordinary collection. I mean, just the, the volume alone. You mentioned 9,000 signed letters over 20 years. That's more than a letter a day he was getting. So so he and these prisoners were very busy. Doesn't he have a bunk bed from the Heaven's Gates cult? I mean, he has just such a wide variety of, of items. Funny you should mention that one because that's the only thing that we sold. Uh, <laughs> we were contacted by a very serious Heaven's Gate enthusiast. And he wanted that bed at any cost. And we, we, you know, calculated a fair price for the bed and he bought it. And now that's part of his collection. And he probably has the greatest Heaven's Gate collection out there. But we no longer have the Heaven's Gate bed. bed. We have everything else. He's probably looking for the UFO. Oh, boy. What a story <laughs> that is. Yes. So how did Richie's collection get started? I mean, what makes someone decide, I want to talk to all these people and correspond with all these people and amass this kind of collection? Well, he was kind of a baseball card collector as a kid. And, you know, that, I guess that little bug had been in him throughout his life. And then it was in the 1990s that he decided he would write to a famous murderer who happened to be David Berkowitz. And actually, I'm sorry, that would be a serial killer because there was more than one or two or three. Because uh, uh, Richie and Barbara live in Yonkers and David Berkowitz came from Yonkers. So there was that connection right there. And once he started talking uh, and writing with Berkowitz, the bug for other serial killers was there. And he started writing to Gacy and Manson and Dahmer and on and on and on and on, like over 100 different uh, serial killers. How much of this have you read and listened to? Have you gone through a bunch of letters? Have you gone through a lot of the tapes? What's your interest level in all of this? I've scanned all the letters and it, it's over, it's between 40 and 45,000 pages of scan. So let's say a one page letter, both sides is two pages of scan. Um, so there's like 9,000 letters, over 40,000 pages of material. And I've only read in detail to excerpt the goodies out of the letters of the serial killers that we're using in the podcasts. I've also listened in detail to the audio tapes of those people as well, transcribing the audio tapes 
again, looking for gems to use in the podcast. And I can tell you there's some really good stuff in there. Uh, John Wayne Gacy is interesting. Charles Manson is interesting. There's another guy. I can't think of his name now. It starts with a G, but he said something in some of the letters that have now opened our eyes to some cold cases that are involved with that guy. Oh, wow. Um, and the detective who's doing the writing for this podcast, based on the content we provided, has contacted the police department that was working on those cases. And it uh, looks like we're going to revisit some of those cold cases. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, my friend, Dr. Fitzpatrick, who does the forensic genealogy, is probably going to get called in on that. She can help identify some of those bodies from the DNA. I like that something good could come out of this if something, some resolution is or some closure is achieved. You mentioned some goodies, aside from the letters that might open some cold cases. Are there some particularly strange or interesting conversations that you came across while you were reading or listening to the tapes? Yeah, I'm, I have a letter here from uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, dated 3-1894. And I'll just excerpt. It's a one-page letter. And Richie had been communicating uh, with uh, Dahmer. And he had mentioned that he was a bodybuilder. That is, Richie mentioned that. So Dahmer writes back the following. Now, you got to put this in context. It's coming from a guy that used to murder, cut up, and eat people. Boys specifically. Yeah, yeah. So let's see. This is, this is the words of Dahmer that I'm reading from the letter. I'd like to get to know you better, but with all the mail that I get, it's difficult to know who I should respond to. So in your next letter, would you please send me some really good photos to help make your letter stand out in the crowd. You said you're a bodybuilder. That's good. I'd like to see every unclothed muscular inch of you. I'm allowed to keep any type of photo except Polaroids. So don't take the pictures with a Polaroid camera, okay? Well, Richard, thanks for writing. I'll be looking forward to hearing from you soon. Sincerely, Jeff. Now, if that doesn't raise the hair on your back, I don't know what does. I can't help but think of Hannibal Lecter at the end of the Science of Lambs saying that he's having an old friend for dinner. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly where that's going. Yeah. And, uh, let's see, Otis Toole and Juan Vega. Uh, Otis Toole was uh, the, the character that alleged to have murdered uh, a kidnap uh, Adam Walsh. Is it Adam? Yeah, the boy is Adam. Oh, from uh, America's Most Wanted. Yeah, John Walsh made that uh, America's Most Wanted show. So Otis Toole and Juan Vega were cellmates together, and they did some very, very dark, bizarre, hair-raising poetry. I'm um, sorry I didn't pull one out ahead of time, but uh, when you read that stuff, it just, it just like, you can lose sleep off, over reading their poetry. I have upped a Gacy conversation, if you want me to play a, just a minute or so of that. Yeah, let's so, hear a clip. That'd be great. Yeah, let's go. Let's hit this right here. Play. Brand's best day type of place. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I'm fucking losing it, right? No, not really. They got some, they got some wild places up in New York. I know. You ever been to one of them places or no? No. It's pretty I've wild. seen live shows of it when I was out in Vegas, but that's about it. I'll tell you one thing. Some of these, uh, some of these guys look a lot better than girls. 
all right, you got the point. <laughs> I had something slip in there that I didn't know was about to come up. But, <laughs> that's okay. But that's, you know, that's just typical of a few second excerpt of a 45-minute audio tape uh, between Richie and John Wayne Gacy. Wow. We actually have a tape. Uh, one of those tapes was within days of him being executed. Wow. And it was probably, I would tend to say, the last recorded conversation with Gacy. And does he talk about the upcoming execution? Uh, yeah, he brings up, there's an ex, there's a part in there where he says, you know, that, well, look, just because you found the bodies in the trunk of my car doesn't mean that I put them there. Uh, you know, even though that's not the case, he was used making an example because bodies were in his basement and he said other people had keys to his house. So, you know, at some point he was in total denial of this and trying to lie that he did it. Yet when he was captured, he confessed to everything and explained where he put all the bodies and how he did it. So this is typical of them. I, I think it's fair to say, as a very general statement, a lot of these uh, serial killers find Jesus once they're in jail. And uh, that becomes their guiding light to uh, show that they're now decent people and they, they have some redemption for what they did. Yet there's others that just proudly talk about what they did. Now, there is another prisoner that Richie corresponded with, a female prisoner, who fell in love with him. Is that correct? And she wanted to, then she actually proposed to him? Well, Susan Smith, the one who drove her two kids into the lake in the back of a car, they had a very long relationship, letter-wise. I don't think he ever visited her, but there was letters, and she used to send clothing and underwear to him. Richie would send her some frilly type underwear stuff um she wear it for a while and send it back and there was the prison undershirts because you know certainly the fancy stuff wasn't issued in prison but there were a lot of yeah very heavy conversations about them wanting to get together if and when she ever got out which of course wasn't going to happen so yeah that was that that whole susan smith thing is quite interesting yeah what's the weirdest piece that you've come across oh i think the hair shaved from Jeffrey Dahmer for his execution. No, 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 not Dahmer. I'm sorry, not Dahmer. Uh, Bundy. Ted Bundy. Mm. Oh, that's the one. Gerard Schaefer. Okay, he's a very dark character who would torture the women and rape them. And uh, Oh, that was horrible. He's one of the worst, the absolute worst animals out there. But uh, Schaefer was cellmates or on death row with Bundy. And they got to know each other quite well. And when Bundy was shaved for execution, Schaefer was able to get some of the hair from the the nurse in the medical unit of death row. So I have a small lock of hair from Bundy right before he died. Wow. Very creepy. Yeah. Well, you have a site that shows uh, or gives a glimpse of, of all this stuff called SerialKillerMurderabilia.com. And clearly, from what we've just discussed, clearly there's a lot of gruesome, disturbing items there. But at the bottom of the site, you know, I couldn't help but notice there's a list of criminals that are featured in the collection. And it's in alphabetical order. And so that means the list starts off with, uh, the list to me at least started off a little unexpectedly. It's Marv Albert. <laughs> oh, okay, because... Uh... Was he arrested for something? Was he put in jail? He w- he was. There was an incident, gosh, I, I forgot if it was like the late 90s or early 2000s, but, you know, he's still broadcasting. I think he's going to retire soon, but okay. Marv Albert, the voice of the NBA, is the first name 
<laughs> SerialKillerMurderAbilia.com. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, there's, there's a handful of celebrity criminals that are in there as well. So that would be one. Another was Pee Wee Herman, uh, who got caught doing some nasty oh, things. Right. What does he have from Pee Wee Herman? Is that a letter? We have... Hopefully it's not the other thing. No, no. We have <laughs> the, uh, the key from Pee Wee Herman's cell block. Richie was able to befriend a guard that was on that block and, and sent him the key there where Pee Wee Herman was. Um, and there might be some signed letter in there from Herman as well. I'm not sure. Now, will any of this ever go on display somewhere? I and mean, you've got the site, you've got the podcast that you mentioned, but will this ever be some sort of museum or some sort of gallery showing? Or would, would any of this go up for the public to witness for themselves if they choose to? We had, have uh, to date, we've done two art shows, one in uh, at a brewery in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and here locally uh, in Freeport, where I live. And uh, we set up you know, quite a few pieces of art on the wall and people would come in and be totally excited about it and love to hear the backstory of how it was collected and, you know, some backstory about the criminals themselves. But other than using the stuff in the podcast and perhaps some TV shows in the future, uh, we don't have any plans to be opening a museum or anything like that. However, if things go very well with the podcast and there's enough interest to open a, a freestanding serial killer museum thing, I think we would do that. Now, is this just pretty much morbid curiosity, or are you hoping that people get something positive out of this? Uh, it's both, Mark. The victims are uh, victims and victims' family and victim rights people are totally against this kind of stuff. In fact, there was one guy out there who bought up some pieces by a very famous serial killer and then brought them out in the street and burned them so nobody else would ever get them. Uh, and you know, they say, this is horrible. You shouldn't be doing it. And I answer that by saying, first of all, I'm not the collector. I'm now the owner and the curator of it. I fully respect the victim's rights and the content that we have is a matter of history. It's a matter of record. It's what these criminals have done once they've been caught, once they've been convicted and spending the rest of their life in jail. So there's nothing really that can be done to go back to help the victim other than hopefully like this, the, that one particular case, I said there's something in the letter that is raising some eyebrows that may help on a cold case. And there may, there may be more of that as we dig into the letters deeper, but that's one that we found right away. Yeah. Hopefully, like I said earlier, hopefully something good comes out of that. Having listened to a lot of these tapes, read a lot of these letters. Do you ever find yourself careful uh, to not go throw knives right after having sort of absorbed a lot of that content? Oh, no, no, no problem. It has no effect on me whatsoever. Okay. Uh, you know, some, so many people who have seen the stuff and heard about the stuff say, oh, how could you have that around? How could you own that? Isn't it bad juju involved with it? And my answer is absolutely not. I'm not a believer of that. And uh, it is what it is. It's an artifact. It's it's inanimate. And it's something you look at, you can learn from, you can either enjoy and not enjoy. If you don't like it, don't look at it. It's, it's simple, just like anything else. Yeah. Well, like I said, I think there will be a lot of morbid curiosity. I'm sure you'll get a listenership and hopefully it, uh, it doesn't spark any imitators. <laughs> I guess it's the big thing, right? Well, yeah. Serial killers today are at a minimum. This stuff 
was happening between the 60s and uh, you know 1960 and the 2000. Uh, that was the heyday of serial killers. Um, and that's, you know, all these people we're talking about are all in prison or dead at this point. There's the, the modern day serial killer is entirely different. And the number of them is significantly less than it was back then. And, you know, there's a lot of theories on that. And perhaps one of the simplest ones is you can't get very far these days with the very prevalent use of DNA and the use of the Internet to track people down and identify them. And for police agencies to have the ability to now communicate with each other, which they didn't do back then. So as soon as a pattern erupts, they're able to jump on it and uh, identify someone a lot quicker. Yeah, it's a great thing about technology. Well, this is great. Thank you for taking me through uh, this collection and talking to us about all of your experiences as the great Throdini, your knife throwing career, which is just remarkable. And it's always a incredible thing to watch and to witness in person. Um, you've thrown knives around me, which was pretty awesome. So I've had that experience. <laughs> and I hope you'll be throwing knives around many other people soon. Hopefully things are opening up and theaters will be anxious to book acts like yours again in the very near future. Thank you, Mark. And uh, let me tell your viewers that it was you who helped put me on the map. I'm very proud to say that early on in my career, when I first heard from you, you were doing the Sideshow book and uh, you interviewed me as one of the chapters of the modern day performers. And that was like such a highlight in my life that someone recognized me as an knife thrower. And uh, so I owe you a, a debt of gratitude for that. Well, that's, that's so nice to hear. Thank you. I'm glad that was beneficial to you. It was certainly beneficial to me. Cool. And uh, let me just sum up by saying you can find me at knifethrower.com. The Game of Talents will be on Tuesday, May 25th at 8 p.m. on Fox TV. That's 8 p.m. Eastern. And the website for the serial killer stuff is serialkillermurderabilia.com. And the uh, podcast on Apple, Spotify, and all the, the major outlets is called The Killer's Vault. Great. Well, people can go check all that out. There's a lot to see there. Like I said, hopefully they'll be seeing you in person sometime soon. Thanks for listening. See more of The Great Throdini at knifethrower.com and see the Serial Killer Collection at serialkillermurderabilia.com. Weird Historian is brought to you by me, Mark Hartsman. The theme song was created by Steffi Copeland, and this episode was edited and mixed by James Archer. For other strange tales, check out my site, weirdhistorian.com, and follow at weirdhistorian on Instagram. Lastly, if you like this podcast, leave a review and tell your friends and share it wherever you share stuff. I'd greatly appreciate the help. Until next time, have a weird day.